What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. When we think about all the basic things that young children begin learning, I'm sure there are some common ones that we would all recognize, like colors, letters, and even shapes. Learning and understanding these basics provide the background knowledge that toddlers need to develop more complex literacy skills later on. But sometimes when we teach these kinds of concepts, we do so in a way that might limit children's understanding. Let's take shapes, for example. If we teach children to recognize simple shapes like circles, squares, and triangles, we might do so by showing them a book or by drawing shapes on a piece of paper. However, these representations of shapes are two-dimensional, and while learning about 2D shapes is important, if we only ever engage in a flat environment, we may be missing out on some important spatial learning. To develop spatial understanding, it helps if children work with shapes in three dimensions, not just two. So here, using things like blocks and other 3D representations of shapes is critical. This kind of spatial learning is really important as we look towards developing early math skills that we hope will someday develop into strong literacy skills in geometry and other disciplines like geography. Many early childhood educators advocate using these kinds of 3D materials in learning. In fact, one of the founding theorists of early childhood education, Maria Montessori, advocates for the use of concrete 3D materials like cubes and beads to illustrate math concepts. Not only can the use of these kinds of materials support spatial development, the ability to physically touch and manipulate things can also be a great enhancement to learning. So when we're thinking about toddlers learning shapes, we may want to extend beyond the triangle to learn about the pyramid or beyond the circle to learn about the sphere. It's easy to bring these 3D shapes into children's worlds with a great set of wooden blocks, but other typical childhood playthings can make the world of shapes pop into 3D. Clay can be easily shaped into 3D objects, or building blocks that lock together with magnets or by other means can easily create a wide world of shapes. Adding the third dimension to build early math literacies with young children may be just about the kinds of play with toys that we already have. So here at Rachel's World, we suggest that maybe next time you sit down to make a tower with blocks or you mess around with clay, why not build and talk about all the cool kinds of 3D shapes there are in the world? Rushing through life, not noticing others, not thinking about others, perhaps even ignoring their challenges or difficulties. We're all guilty of this. Can we do better? What do we have that others lack? What have been our unearned privileges? And what privileges have been denied to others, sometimes by fate, but also by social injustice? Our first guest today, Dr. Ramona Kutri, is passionate about society's need for deeper reflection about what we see in the circumstances of others all around us. Adults who achieve a moral literacy can foster moral literacy in children. And the world awaiting all of us is rife with inequality and social disadvantage. Ramona Kutri is an associate professor of multicultural education at Brigham Young University in the Department of Teacher Education. 
Today, she speaks with Rachel about the need for this special category of human literacy, so important for both adults and children. We're in studio with Ramona today. Welcome, Ramona. Thank you. Ramona, I think we have some very timely topics to discuss today. Um, One of your expertise is really about class identities and helping children navigate what it means to have those kinds of social identities. So to start off, let's define that for our listening audience. What do we mean when we talk about class identities or social identities in that way? I think it's important to make a distinction between class and your socioeconomic status. They're related, but they're different. And um, class can involve, of course, and is influenced by your economic status, but it also is very much um, inclusive of ways of being, ways of knowing in the world um, that might privilege you or, or not privilege you to access to certain types of situations and a sense of um, knowing what to do, knowing how to be, uh, and that um, is influenced by things like schooling, education background of your parents, um, exposure to different types of experiences that, again, are very closely often in our society tied to economic background and economic status. But um, there is there is a benefit to distinguishing between class and economic status to really understand the larger picture. I love that distinction that you're making because I think these class identities really have a broader impact than socioeconomic status or even other classes that we might put on people like race or cultural kinds of statuses that we put there. And it really is amazing to me how much these impact how we interact with the world. And as our listeners know, that's kind of how we define literacy here on the show is anything we do to interact with the world. And so these perceptions that we have as part of our class identities really shape how we interact with the world in all of those different ways. So what what do we really need to understand? I mean, what are some of the basic things that as concerned adults we need to understand about these class identities, especially when we're interacting with children, our own children, or helping our children interact with others? What are some important things we need to know? I think that um, you actually raised um, in your comment some some things like uh, class, race, and you mentioned some other categories. The notion of intersectionality is crucial. We are not just made up of one characteristic. We are our race. We are our economic status. We are um, our language background. We are our gender. We are our sexual orientation. So this notion that we are um, holistic beings and that our our characteristics intersect um, is called intersectionality in the literature. There are also really important ways in which parts of our um, identities can be hidden or remain um, unnoticed by teachers, by parents, by friends. And that can be a real burden for people if they're needing to keep things secret, keep things hidden. And on the flip side, those characteristics like skin color, like language, like accent that cannot be kept hidden present different challenges. And yet both of those things often present opportunities and rich resources in children's lives, particularly as they learn to interact with the world. This is such an important thing that we're addressing here. 
And I think one of the best ways we can do that is to really talk about these things and be open with our children and have frank discussions about some of these types of things with with the all honesty, knowing that we may not be able to have the solution or we may not be able to have all the answers. So in these kinds of discussions, especially with children, how would you recommend we approach that? What what are some of the ways that we can kind of make these kinds of conversations a little less difficult for us as adults to have with our children? Yes. The first place I go to is the dinner table because I'm a mom. And I think that um, every time my family is able to sit down and enjoy a wonderful meal that really wasn't that hard to obtain, we say a prayer in our faith tradition and we bless the food. And we very much try and focus on the fact that we recognize that other people don't have such easy access to food. And that is not necessarily their own fault, that there are larger systemic issues in that. And I think just that daily recognition that we have food and that other people don't have such easy access to food, that can plant a seed in children to help them recognize, oh, not everyone has what I have. Not everyone has the same lunch I have. Public schooling, I'm a huge proponent of public schooling. You are able to sit around um, a school lunch table and maybe even eat all of the same kind of food, but um, to begin to recognize that not all of you got that food in the same way. Some people, their parents just wrote a check or credit card to the school and paid for it. Some people receive free and reduced lunch. And I think it's so important um, to begin to develop skills of self-reflection and self-critique. And sometimes people hear the word critique and, and have a very negative connotation oh, of no. it. <laughs> but self-critique and, and critique of one's circumstances, one's life circumstances in which they find themselves really means um, a, a very r- rational um, examination of what you have and how, how you've come to have it. So tell us a little bit about how do you think we should start negotiating these kinds of identities? Maybe let's start with those of us who are maybe of an upper middle class kind of of realm, and we are trying to understand and embrace those who might not have those privileges that we do in that area. Too often, we just breeze through our lives like very, um, it's a, a great, wonderful thing to get to breeze through your life. But it also is important to recognize, hey, how come I get to breeze through my life? Not that everyone's life is easy, but I'll give you an example. I teach at a university with very high um, requirements to be admitted into the university. And my students, um, when they come, they have worked hard for the most part, very, very hard. And um, there are other people who have perhaps come to the university and not met the exact same requirements for admittance into that university. And it would be very easy for the student in the first category to say, what? That's not fair. Look how hard I worked. And that person doesn't have the same GPA I had. That person doesn't have as high of an ACT score that I got. And therefore, that's not fair. And I think it's really important to distinguish between what's fair and what's equitable. Those are two different concepts. And when we think about the playing field on which many children, all children, 
start off on. It's not level. It's very um, differentiated. And it's often very differentiated according to um, socioeconomic status and according to race, according to language background. And all of these things impact students' school experiences and school achievement. Therefore, my students um, who perhaps have come from a very upper middle class background, oftentimes I ask them to look back at their own relatively recent history, because they're usually in their 20s, and think about the um, privileges or advantages that they had in their own life that helped them do school. Did they have access to things like being able to go to school every day on time without having to worry about how to get there or without having to worry about situations at home? Were they just able to sort of go to school and be a student? What were they able to do after school? Were they able to participate in extracurricular activities? Or did they have to actually work to earn money, not just for fun things, but earn money to contribute to their household to actually do things like pay for food and keep a roof over their heads? So just those little self um, reflections, those little critiques of the circumstances in which one has grown up or continues to be, I think are so important and just really easy, concrete ways to realize, oh, perhaps I had certain privileges that allowed me or helped me get my really high GPA and my really high ACT scores. The question that you asked me about what can we do as parents, what can we do as educators, I think that one of the most important things to do is look at um, the construct of who do we blame for poverty? Do we blame poor people for being poor? Um, do we just automatically assume that if you work hard, you aren't going to be poor, you're going to be rich? That construct is called meritocracy. And it's a myth. It's not true. So I think as we can uncouple hard work equals being rich and lazy equals being poor, the more that we can debunk that myth of meritocracy, the better we are able to actually humanize people who are in poverty and help them. I think another crucial part um, of the agenda of really trying to figure out concrete ways in which we can help our own children, help our own friends and colleagues better understand poverty is by looking at the notion that there are systematic structures at work that keep replicating the societal order that we have, that poor people tend to be poor. It's generational and that rich people oftentimes generationally continue to be rich. So um, as we look at that and really look at it from an institutional perspective, um, we can identify unearned privileges People from a wealthy background often, or even from a middle-class background, um, who are experiencing, they're experiencing life just in their normal day-to-day -day way, but failing to recognize the unearned privileges that they have. What ways in which I walk through life that I don't have to worry about certain things, just based on what I look like, just based on the car that I drive or the area that I live in, the schools that I get to send my kids to. How do all of those things sort of grease the wheels for me? And what's really fulfilling is recognizing the part that you can have in um, helping the world to be a better place and in learning about situations and then making an ethical and moral decision um, about what you're going to to do about it. I think that that's kind of what all of this boils down to is that 
understanding of morality. And I, I guess I would state kind of this moral literacy that we need to have about mm-hmm. the world around us. And that doesn't have to be totally overwhelming. And we don't have to become, you know, give all of our wealth away and do all of these things. But there are small little things that we can do on a daily basis to help to help each other and to build ourselves up as a society. Kind of shifting gears um, now, what would we say to those who are not of this upper middle class identity, who have the the other end of the spectrum, as it were, what can we say to help or to help us understand that perspective a little bit better? And what do we need to do as concerned adults to help children who are in those identities and in that space in their lives to feel more empowered and to grow into strong individuals? I myself grew up in poverty, Rachel, and so I can speak to that question from from my own experience. I think that one of the greatest tragedies in my mind is that poverty is an item of shame. If you have poverty in your background, if you are currently living in poverty, the first place you go to, the first place society goes to is shame and shaming you. Um, So often, especially in um, the Western world, we buy into this notion of meritocracy, that if you work hard, you're going to be rich. Therefore, the converse of that is if you're poor, you must just be lazy. And so much shame surrounds that, that that narrative. And it's so false. Because if you look um, around, even in your own daily community, as you're driving down the street, um, I have a mother-in-law who lives in a beautiful area of Southern California called Laguna Beach. And as we drive around Laguna Beach, having fun on our vacations, I can look out the window and see people toiling, working in the hot sun for long hours, doing hard physical labor, they're working very hard, but they are not going to be getting rich. And so I think that um, it's important to recognize that wealth does not, hard work does not equate wealth. And to take pride in the hard work that you do. Or if you're a child of a parent who um, does manual labor, take pride in that manual labor that your parents do. Um, and the hard work and ability to really stay focused and to to get up in the morning and to do that work when you are not going to be rewarded by society, either in status, socially, or economically. So I wanted to go back and identify a little bit or, or talk a little bit about socioeconomic status and the huge impact that it has on the ways in which we experience the world. And I'd like to share a quote from Elder Holland in his last general conference talk, April 2017. Elder Holland said, economic deprivation is a curse that keeps on cursing year after year and generation after generation. It damages bodies, maims spirits, harms families, and destroys dreams. If we could do more to alleviate poverty, as Jesus repeatedly commands us to do, maybe some of the less fortunate in the world could hum a few notes of There is Sunshine in My Soul Today, perhaps for the first time in their lives. 
And I love that Elder Holland quote because he cuts through all of the fluff and describes concrete ways in which poverty impacts children and their families, maims spirits, damages bodies, harms families, destroys dreams. Elder Holland also gets at the um, generational cycle of poverty, that poverty can often move from one generation to another without the intervention of people like teachers, people like educators. Um, So it's so important to to really realize um, the devastation that poverty can can wreak. I think another um, really great exercise to do with students or children or adults who are in poverty is to help them begin to recognize the resources and characteristics, the resourcefulness that they've developed um, as human beings. Because I'm telling you, poor kids, we know how to get it done. And we do not have a lot of resources. We don't have helicopter parents making sure we did everything we're supposed to do. And so that resiliency is a characteristic that is going to carry a child who um, has experienced poverty so far in this world. And the irony that often now we talk about upper middle class malaise and the... um, you know, generation of of video games and, and all of that, where there is not a lot of resiliency, where if you tell me I didn't do a good job, I'm all of a sudden a puddle on the floor crying because no one's ever told me that I didn't do a good job. All they've told me is good job, good job. And so actually, I think helping children who are currently or who have lived in poverty, adults as well, to recognize the amazing resources and characteristics that they've developed out of that poverty. Now, in saying that, I never want anyone to have to experience poverty, but it is a fact of our society. And so to be able to help people in poverty recognize the strengths that they've developed in those situations and how those very strengths actually map on to a middle-class normalcy really well. And by that, I mean, for example, a kid who has grown up in poverty, who needs to be very self-directed, who needs to be very hardworking, who needs to be very resourceful, and who needs to be very resilient. Those are all characteristics that any corporation in the... (laughs) The business world would want to have an employee with those characteristics. Are you kidding me? You're self-directed. You're resilient. You can take critique and feedback and, and get up and go and improve yourself. Those are wonderful characteristics. Yet those characteristics are often downplayed. And they're overshadowed, like I said in the beginning, by this cloud of shame. If you are poor, if your parents are poor in the United States, it's often equated with you must just not be working hard enough. You must be lazy. Therefore, your poverty is your own fault. And that could not be further from the truth when we um, begin to look at the ways in which um, our society perpetuates rich becoming richer and staying rich and poor, staying poor, and also becoming even more poor. Ramona, this is incredible. I really appreciate you bringing these ideas and thoughts to the fore because they're critical to our society today. I Here's hoping that in the years to come, poverty will be eliminated and everyone will have the kinds of privileges and access that we would want. 
And I think that it's going to be our kids. They're going to be the ones that's going to make that happen. So if we can start opening these conversations, helping them be critical about themselves, whatever their situation, and understand what wonderful characteristics they bring to the table, I think I think that's where we're going to see the change. So thank you so much, Ramona. Thank you. BYU Professor of Multicultural Education, Dr. Ramona Kutri, sharing her expertise and perspectives on broadening our view to better address the inequalities of socioeconomic and educational backgrounds. Finally, Cole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting Team talks with some students at BYU about everyone's favorite fictional wizard, Harry Potter. The first Harry Potter book was released in 1998, at least here in the United States, as The Sorcerer's Stone. And so for an entire generation, for my generation, it became a fantastic entry point into literature and getting kids excited about reading and books. So I took some time with my peers here at Brigham Young University to ask them about their childhood experiences with Harry Potter, starting with which book is their favorite. I love The Prisoner of Azkaban. And I think, I don't know why, I think because I really like Sirius and I was kind of like, you really like get to see him and introduce to him and stuff. And I think that's why I really like it. Uh, I really liked the seventh book. That was definitely my favorite. Just like kind of the elements of the book and like the characters I felt like they developed really well. I love the fourth, the fourth Harry Potter book. Um, the Triwizard Tournament, I thought it was really fun to uh, learn about the wizarding schools and um, to have that, that big event going off. Favorite book is Goblet of Fire because that's, I feel like that's where the series changes and uh, the battle between good and evil becomes even more uh, important and even more intense. I always like the Goblet of Fire the most because, I don't know, there's just a lot of different things happened all at once, and Voldemort, well, spoiler alert, Voldemort comes back in the end, and it just kind of changed the feel of the story at that point. Do you have any poignant memories of reading Harry Potter as a child or with your parents, and what that meant? to you or why these books are so great and i'd read them i'd start the first one finish the fourth one and start off for the first one straight away and um i used to sneak the fourth book underneath my pillow at night so i could read it with the landing light when i was supposed to be asleep and my dad banned me from reading harry potter because he thought that it was um, scaring me and it was making me scared of the dark when actually actual reality, I was setting the light on because I wanted to read it more. Well, it gives you imagination, because like, you know, you can watch movies and that's great, but books, you can create your own characters, you can... For me personally, books and Harry, Harry Potter in itself, it's a great way to have an imagination and to be able to live in another world, right? When the last book came out, stayed up, uh, my mom went and got it for me. I'm older, and so I was still, I was a kid, so my mom went and got it for me. Um, came back, gave it to me, I stayed up all night, I think to like 5, 6 a.m. reading the whole thing, and the last book's pretty big. And so just just seeing how it ended and just loving seeing like where Terry is in 20 years and has kids, and I just, I just love like the end of it, the end of the, my last memory of reading. My parents read the first couple of books with me as a kid, but after that I was all, all on my own. I used to go to the library like all the time and when the books first came out 
I remember they started reading them to us at like library time. They had this reading hour. And so that's how I was first introduced to Harry Potter. And then I just started reading them every year when they would come out, mostly in the car. We took a lot of trips where we drove around a lot and I would just read them in the car. I would stay up late on school nights, hiding under my covers, reading the books so my mom wouldn't know. (laughs) And last question before we're done, what house do you reckon you'd be in? Well, Pottermore sort of made Slytherin. (laughs) A lot of people don't really see that, but I like it. Oh, I'm a Hufflepuff. (laughs) I'm Ravenclaw all the way. I am 100%, 110% Gryffindor, always. Definitely Gryffindor. I mean, who doesn't want to be a part of Gryffindor? That was student producer Cole Wissinger speaking with college students about their thoughts and memories of reading Harry Potter through the years. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.